Diane, it's 7.45 p.m. Welcome to um, another episode of Twin Peaks Peaks. Uh, my name is Ashley. And I am Matthew. <laughs> Are you I've laughing because I... have never heard you self-identify as Matthew ever. I'm sure you have, but you're right. It is funny in the context of the podcast. Well, also because my mom calls you Matthew. That's weird. That's weird that your mom has created a, a preference for that. This is how we're starting the show, really? You kind of started it, so... I did not. You could have just um, let that slide. Tell us about the revival news okay, so we can move quickly whatever. past so this. So we're going to be covering episode 7, a.k.a. Realization in Time. We were off last week um, just to take a break because we've been doing this for a while. Well, you were busy. I was busy. We didn't need a break. I was busy. Whatever. Let's not lie to the listeners. I have a lot going on right now. That's, yeah, okay. That's, anyway. That's fair. That's true. That's real. That's what the listeners come to this show to, to, to hear. Well, we're both going to have a lot going on soon, so. And the show will come out on a weekly basis. Yes. Pending, well, I mean, I'm always down to record podcasts. I'm pretty much doing it every waking hour of every day. So it's going to be kind of constrained by your schedule. But that's okay. <laughs> That's true. Um, in any case, there was some big revival news coming out this week, specifically from the Showtime executives who have opened up a little bit about the uh, ongoing pre-production broadca- uh, pre-production process uh, for Twin Peaks, which is going to start filming in uh, September. So we have to make a road trip pretty soon. We do. Well, I think it's unclear if they're going to start filming in Snoqualmie and then move to California or the other way around or if there's going to be some inner intermittent is, is there I guess this would be supplemental to this revival news segment but do we even know where they're planning on filming it we've heard that they plan on having uh new shots in or at least outside of the diner uh in North Bend Washington right. but Fire Walk With Me, as I understand it, was mostly filmed around Washington because they, like, used a new a new house as Laura's house in uh-huh. Everett, Washington. So there's, like, more of a commitment to that locale. And as this news will kind of lead me towards, uh, I suspect the revival might be produced more, similar to, uh, more similarly to Fire Walk With Me. And you're referring to the fact that the Showtime executives have been quoted as saying that the entire revival will be shot as basically one movie and then divided into an indeterminate number of episodes during the editing process. Exactly. Which, if I were going to film one long movie and I was going to shoot anything in one place i would probably stick to that general geographic location but we just don't we've not heard anything about location scouting or anything for this yet right well like you said we do know that they did um kind of update the facade of the diner well not even update i don't even know if if that's happened yet though like production that might be something kind of quick and dirty they do on the outside that might even be like a removable change for all we know that's true um as I, did I describe this on the podcast? All the Tweety Birds inside that they have? 
I think you did. I'm pretty sure they could take those down for the purposes of filming and then Maybe. put them back Maybe. up if need be. But um, And they are saying that the premiere date could be as early as 2016, but they did not rule out a 2017 premiere date. Yeah. Well, this is... I won't say this news has me worried, but it has me wondering because it's very unusual for a television network to say, we don't actually know how many episodes of this we've ordered because they decided to shoot it as one big movie and then cut it into episodes. Yeah, that's really wild. That pretty much defies the whole setup of TV, not just in terms of like, Usually you film one episode at a time, but, like, usually there are distinct acts and plots and subplots and arcs in an individual episode. Mm -hmm. So to be able to break it up from one long movie seems not absurd, but, like, (laughs) overwhelming. It also leads me to wonder how much of this is based off of what was planned dating back to fire walk with me because now with the blu-rays out of the show and the movie they took the extra few hours of footage that they had from fire walk with me that didn't make it into the theatrical cut and turned that into its own thing called the missing pieces Mm -hmm. and like i have alluded to in the past and as we will you know months from now in podcast time get to fire walk with me is very tonally distinct from the show and part of that is production but a lot of it you can just chalk up to david lynch acting more explicitly in a creative role um rather than episodic television with different directors and different writers Mm -hmm. handling scripts and stuff uh so i wonder if the reasoning behind writing this as one big script is that they were like, well, we had these other long scripts that were for the movies that were planned beyond or other long form ideas that were planned for movies beyond fire walk with me. Right. And like the, uh, like Mulholland drive, which was a backdoor pilot mm-hmm. for Audrey moving to LA basically. Yeah. Uh, they, like, had ideas of what else it was they were going to do in universe in Twin Peaks. So I wonder if any of that has bled in, but also, if that's the case, then we can assume that, we can assume more than we have been or have wanted to, that this is gonna look more like a movie and less like the TV show that people are maybe expecting, like, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, David Lynch is going to direct all the episodes. Like, that's great. And it's like, I wonder everybody who's having that unquestioning, that's great response, realizes that he directed, what, three episodes of the show? Four, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. In the director's chair for a minuscule sliver of the show. And people love those episodes. True. People are obsessed with those episodes and I think a lot of people point to those as like the really seminal moments of Twin Peaks but at the same time the plot kind of only advances because of the episodes in between that are taken over by other directors and are maybe a bit tamer in terms of just aesthetic presentation um, the way the dialogue and the characters are presented but advance the plot in a much more 
I think, conventional sense. Yeah, episodes that kind of follow a TV format of, like you said, main plots, subplots, advancing that within the space of an episode. Mm-hmm. You know, you wonder if what's being pitched is like a movie in nine acts with the sub acts in which case it's like okay that does sound like a tv show or if it really is going to be this kind of like you tune in for an hour of whatever twin peaks is that week and maybe it's a lot of scenes from the perspective of one character or following this group or that group but not like this more traditional television show which twin peaks didn't buck the trend of where yeah you have an ensemble cast and you are going to check in with most everybody every week yeah to see what's new well, and it's interesting because, so, the week that this episode, um, Realization in Time, aired, um, was also the week that the show was renewed for its second season, um, and we'll get to that when we talk about the Usenet board segment, but at the time, there was, um, some rumor going around that the second season would be considerably more episodic in nature than the first season had been. Hmm. So there was always this fear of Twin Peaks kind of changing um, and becoming more or less conventional. Um, but I, th- the point kind of being that, like, I think um, every fan has their own sense of what the show is, and it doesn't seem like that necessarily does or has ever really lined up with the production process. Fair. Yeah. I just wonder how much the 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 usenet comment is interesting because the idea that somehow the first season wasn't episodic just because it was eight episodes and they didn't know if they'd be renewed um kind of falls flat because season one like as we'll see next week like it's not written assuming like let's wrap everything up yeah um which might be the response of somebody who's like, oh, we might not get a second season, but if we do, we can transfer to, or transition to more episodic storytelling. It's like, maybe the people who expected that because they're still caught up in the sense of the central mystery yeah. that needs solving. Absolutely. Whereas I think the show from the get-go is planned around getting you invested in these, I guess, you know, comparatively subplots like The Mill. Right. In which case, oh wait, if you kind of strip down to that perspective, it's always and consistently is episodic in a way that's I don't think ever fades. It's just sometimes the episodes are bad, like season two, half two. Well, but there's definitely a lot of stuff that's just not resolved from episode to episode, like um Shelly and Leo, Mm -hmm. um, Donna and James. Actually, it's just a lot of, like, couples in unrequited love. Like, that is almost the same from episode to episode. There's no distinct arc that begins and ends with an episode. Yeah. And I just, like, it doesn't doesn't change that. I don't see why the fear would have been, like, at the start of the episode, Cooper has a problem, and then, like... (laughs) solves it by the end like law and order like no i don't like <laughs> or just like sheriff truman like doing his like procedural day-to-day like police shit in twin peaks like giving out giving out some parking tickets in like the one area where like they require parking permits 
That would be good. I'd watch that. Especially if there's like some backwards talking and a dream segment in the middle about like having to show up for court to contest the parking ticket. Yeah, I'd watch that. But like, this is exactly what I'm saying. Is, has any show actually done that? Where if they don't start as a strict procedural episodic, everything's everything is self-contained. Uh, if they don't start as that, suddenly moving towards that format, like no procedurals are planned. Well, that kind of episodic television is planned to be that from the case, and I don't think any show has ever been rescued and like lived a longer life by suddenly saying, "Well, we were gonna have season long plot arcs and keep people invested, kind of as though we were a soap opera, but now it's gonna be the X Files." Like it didn't work that way well but there have been shows where they have made kind of similar moves like that show up all night that had will arnett christina applegate and maya rudolph do you remember that from a few years ago absolutely not well anyway um so the first two seasons (laughs) the first two seasons it was a single cam show um and then it got like pretty low ratings and when it was renewed for a third season the decision came down from uh, the network, and I forget which network it was, that they were going to move to multicam. Like traditional sitcom. Yeah. Why? Why would you ever? Because that made it cheaper to produce. Ugh. But then you're just doing a different show by the same name. Which may be Twin Peaks on Showtime will be. Anyway, let's talk about on the episode note. we watched this week. Alright, so we left off on a couple of cliffhangers from the previous episode, namely, Shelly fired a gun at Leo, and uh, we didn't really see what happened with that, and uh, we left Audrey naked in uh, Special Agent Dale Cooper's bed. Yep. Awkward situation. And so we don't open on uh, Shelly having shot Leo, we open on Audrey and Cooper, mm-hmm. naturally. Yeah, because that's what people want the resolution for. (laughs) And the resolution comes pretty quick. It's wrapped up with a few lines of dialogue and promise of malted milkshakes and french fries and talking about problems and secrets, a conversation which we never see or really know if it happens or not. Yeah, that was kind of frustrating. Yeah, you. I bet you would love to see that scene. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Like... Audrey sitting, like, now clothed, sitting on top of the bed, just, like, eating french fries, being, like... I bet we missed, like, another great outfit. Like, (laughs) that's pretty painful. The outfit that Audrey wore to Cooper's room before disrobing. Exactly, exactly. Its own killer outfit, now lost to time. But, uh... Sorry about that. So, it's interesting because they... The lines are written such that Cooper does sort of acquiesce that he is interested in audrey i mean he explicitly says that and then he says what i want and what i need are two different things Mm -hmm. do you think that that line can be interpreted in two different ways what do you (laughs) when i rewatched the episode i was like what i want and what i need are two different things and there's the straightforward like i want you right and I need to be professional or whatever. Or it can be that I need you and what I want is to be this 
special agent. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. You went there. Because, yeah, because, I mean, there's, you can, you can do as I am normally want to do, which is look at Cooper as this character who is in control most of the time and put together Uh and has things figured out or has things figured out before they even happen. Or you can, like, it, it, yeah, it I don't ties even... into us never seeing Diane is one thing I think about a lot. Yeah, where it's just well... like, how much of that is artifice to keep him going in the image that he wants to create for himself? And how much would it matter with if he had somebody in his life who he seemed to have a connection to that he didn't have to... Like, in his scenes with Audrey, he's like, mysterious, cool, secret agent guy. But that's just like, he's flirting. Right. With everybody else, he kind of keeps up this dynamic of being, you know, very, very zen, very, I very dream of Tibet, very in control, but not around Audrey. Uh-huh. No, that's a really interesting point, and I feel like to a certain extent, um, I, like, rarely think about Cooper as having wants or needs, really. Like, he just kind of is, to a certain extent. Um, and I definitely think that, like, he's presented that way, but I think you do bring up an interesting point, which is, like, what is, what's going on under, well, under that quirky we'll, artifice? We'll get some more of what's going on underneath Kyle McLaughlin's immaculately pressed suit later on. Yeah. It's also, when he thinks about just, like, well, when he speculates about, like, real estate in Twin Peaks and things like that, where you're just like, what does this person want? Like, not necessarily an fbi careerist yeah well and again that doesn't seem infused with a particular like yearning or like desire it's just like a something that he's doing like something is driving him to do it it's not an empty motion but it seems like almost um like impulsive and like totally action-based do you know what i mean sort of do we have anything else we want to say about this, this like quick, it's like a two minute long scene and they're just like cliffhanger wrap up. I know. Up. And then he's just like, I'm going to get us some French fries and milkshakes. <laughs> Cut to next scene. Yeah. Uh, he does say that he has no secrets, mm-hmm. which is interesting considering like. And totally like a lie. Yeah. But it also like is kind of him setting himself apart from the residents of Twin Peaks who have all been proven to be avid secret keepers at this point. Yeah it's it's the number one pastime in twin peaks and number two is doing cocaine in secret yes um <laughs> well number two is having extramarital affairs <laughs> sorry you're right yeah extramarital three. affairs is definitely number two in fact it's a close number two behind number one if only because most of the secrets are about uh affairs so that's true um let's keep talking about audrey uh this episode yeah. why not Because Audrey, after this encounter with Cooper, continues scheming and doing her own investigation. Actually, I have a question for you. Do you think that Audrey's vulnerability in this scene and kind of going over into the previous episode, her kind of appearance in Cooper's bed, do you think that that's kind of an air? Do you think that's, like, put upon? Do you think she's, like, purposefully being manipulative or do you think that she is genuinely like being vulnerable if if i had to sit back and guess 
based on the actions Audrey is taking, like immediately prior and immediately following this, and if we are to believe that the reason why she goes to Cooper's bed is at least in part motivated by having found out that in her in her investigating that her father is having an extramarital affair, which I want to say <laughs> later this episode, Harry's like. Yeah, it's been going on for a while, and I knew. And yet, he's <laughs> dating Josie, and not the slightest bit worried that two of the most powerful people in town, neither, well, at least one of whom he knows does not like Josie, mm-hmm. are, are doing this, like, are having this thing. You know, the Sheriff Harry, Harry Truman just, he knows what he knows. Okay. And he doesn't... He doesn't... He doesn't, he doesn't step in. You know, he doesn't react. If it's if it's not in the purview of the bookhouse boys and related to some mysterious presence in the forest, he's not too worried. <laughs> anyway, Audrey finds out, and that, we can say, like, shakes her and upsets her and lends her some vulnerability. But I also get the sense that she is... A, Audrey is a character who... Is a, is a person who has a difficult time being vulnerable. Yeah, and um, I guess I really asked that question because I feel like maybe the first time I watched this, I really did think that she was being vulnerable and, like, very genuine, but there is a scene coming up that I think um, shows a different kind of mode or version of vulnerability that just is a bit more raw. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, this episode? No. Mm. Coming up? Coming up? Not off the top of my head, sorry. I'm surprised this isn't coming to mind. Well, you shouldn't have made it such an integral part of what you wanted to talk about. If well, we can't whatever. talk about spoilers. Okay. Um, we'll get there. It'll, yeah, what I'm saying is, like, first watch, I was like, oh, this is, like, a real genuine thing. But, like, having seen um, an upcoming episode before, um, it seems more like a play on vulnerability than, like, genuine, raw um emotional distress what i think is that audrey is a hyper capable very smart and like very confident at most times teenager who wants this wants this special agent in her life has this shake-up revelation come as a result of her poking around and and looking into this thing which honestly she has the right to know right and i think she realizes that but it's still upsetting but in that moment like what is audrey like audrey is not going to just like break down and and cry mm-hmm. or just like bottle it up like it itself like expressing her vulnerability might itself be filtered through whatever you know aspect of her personality is kind of what propels her to investigate the circumstances of Laura's death and her father's dealings and so forth. Where it's just like, now, to even express any of this vulnerability, I'm going to turn it into this opportunity to maybe, like, make something happen yeah, with the secret agent. it is agent. very opportunistic. And it's But that's not unrealistic as a character choice. You just kind of have to see it as, like, this is a person who makes these odd decisions, and maybe this is, like one way of like making a decision for the sake of saying to literally anybody like who else can she even tell about this if she decides to other than the agent who's the one person who might actually affect change in this town right now 
in the wake of this death. Yeah, I mean, that is a good point, but it is interesting that I think Audrey does leverage, like, a pretty high degree of control in this scene. Like, obviously, ultimately, it comes down to um, Dale saying, you know, I can't be with you, or it's wrong, or whatever. But, you know, she has put herself in his room. Mm -hmm. She's taken off her clothes. She's said that she doesn't want to leave. And it's a certain kind of soft power that she's levering against his hard power i'd say kyle mclaughlin more gives off a kind of creamy power <laughs> it's its own kind of soft power fair but i do think it's interesting because i think um in any other scene where they're apart um either dale or audrey is generally in control so it's interesting to see them be in a scene together and kind of negotiate um, that power. Hmm. Well, so with that discussed, just the very first scene of the episode, uh, let's quickly talk, at least plot points, what the hell else Audrey gets up to, because it's quite a lot. She sneaks in to Battis's office and mm -hmm. figures out what the like signal is and She's who the contact is. So and, goddamn clever in that yeah. scene. Uh, except for the smoking in the, in the, uh... Yeah, you would think that someone would notice that, but... It smells like someone's smoking, not have in the past, but right now, in my <laughs> office. It smells like, like why is has there... just lit a cigarette yeah, anyway. in my closet. Um, um, but eavesdrops in the closet, figures out the signal on how to, like, get an audience at One-Eyed Jack's mm -hmm. for potentially becoming one of the, uh hospitality girls and goes there does it does kind of fucks up the initial gambit but then busts out uh the cherry stem thing which okay what is the appeal of that for a cis male audience you're asking me as like the representative nope, of the system. Nope, that is a hypothetical. That... You do not need to answer that question. I am saying there. You're is... just putting that out there. Well, I'm saying that there's like a more relevant application of that. A more relevant application of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. Okay. What needs to be unsaid? <laughs> um, so. Did you see the little tidbit I did, which is that Sherilyn Fenn can't do that? Yeah, I did see that. But that Madchen Hammock can. <laughs> yeah. And apparently did it on talk shows because this was a moment where people were like, that's one of the moments. Like, oh, Audrey, how hot. But oh, then they would be like, Sherilyn, can you do it? And just like, no, but Madchen Hammock's like <laughs> sitting on the couch and be like, I can. Hey, I can do the cherry stem thing. It's like. I love Madchen though. Yeah, no. I, th I She just... looks like ageless now and she's on that show about witches. Mm-hmm. Which um, I have not seen, but I love the concept. I want to look up some of those interviews because they would often, like, they were they were kind of, like, this young it cast where it's, like, all of them are, like... The Rolling Stone cover they did oh, where yeah. it was, oh, my God. It's, like, attractive 20-something otherwise unknowns on this, like, cult TV show. So they would do talk shows in groups, and that's got to be a really interesting dynamic. But anyway passes 
passes the muster mm-hmm. uh, by Black Rose's standards. Even though the I love the, <laughs> I gotta say, kind of uncharacteristic that Audrey would be so simple as to use a name from the Scarlet Letter. Yeah, I almost <laughs> wonder if like we're misinterpreting that line. Is that really from the Scarlet Letter? Oh, great. Neither of us have read the Scarlet Letter? No, I haven't. Oh, perfect. Well, we'll leave it till next podcast to discuss then. But that's... Audrey does all that in the span of one episode. Has gone from... She also, like, you'd think that that would be, like... I know it's, like, only five miles away, but you'd think that, like, her arc would end at One-Eyed Jacks for this episode because she's done a lot. Mm-hmm. But then she comes back. She yeah. spends most of the rest of the episode trying to call dale yeah in the great northern but still up to a lot also probably like does she have a car is that is that what's going on is there a border checkpoint i have a lot of questions i have a lot of questions but they're irrelevant questions we also got a great audrey look this episode which was uh the long black coat and the pink sweater great choice fantastic silhouette okay I don't have anything to add on that. I also thought it was a great look. I did notice it while I was watching. It was like, that sweater. Very good. Um, Um, So, a bird gets murdered (laughs) in this episode. So, um... If you want to talk about Leo and also, by extension, Shelly and Bobby. Yeah, we really don't get to Leo and Shelly until, like, a ways into the episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had left off, like, literally, Shelly had shot the gun... And, like, looked distressed. And we had no idea what had happened to Leo. And then we open on Leo um, basically spying on Shelly at their house as, you know, Bobby enters. Um, It's very clear that he's only been, you know, his bicep has been grazed. Mm -hmm. But uh, he finally discovers that his business partner and his wife are having an affair. Yeah. I feel like this is the first time an affair has been really unearthed. In Twin Peaks yet. Sure. Yeah. It feels like there's always this background radiation of Nadine knowing about Ed and Norma. Yeah, you'd think. But then it's just, like, not addressed. But we'll talk about those characters in a segment later on in the episode. Um, Shelly did did fuck up Leo, though. Shot him. He is pained he is trying to shoot a sniper rifle with <laughs> one arm uh which That's seems true. terribly awkward uh bobby's response is particularly interesting especially because he says i'm gonna deal with leo and i'm gonna deal with james in the same breath yeah where it's like, like james like shelly's standing there and i'm wondering if in her head she's just like did i did i did I stutter? Did I say James or anything? That's not relevant to me right now. I shot my husband. I shot the person I'm legally married to who's abusing me. Why do we still care about James on his motorcycle? Um, but For Bobby, these are really at the same level. He's got to take on both of his girlfriend's other boyfriends. Yeah. Regardless of, you know, their behavior... The intensity of those relationships. Mm-hmm. They're on equal footing just because they're the Man. actual <laughs> boyfriends of his yeah. girlfriends. Uh, in which Bobby says he's going to take care of Leo. And then, well, we don't know where Leo is. So sets his sights on on uh, James and goes about following uh, 
the James, Donna, Maddie trio around for the rest right. of the episode. Yeah. And they're also scheming. And they also, in a short so span many, of time... So many teen detectives. In a short span of time, they accomplish a lot. Namely, oh my God. finding not a great wig, but I wonder if there's a wig store in town <laughs> where they got Maddie her I Laura really, hair. I really want to think that they took Cheryl Lee put the Maddie wig over her and then put the Laura wig over that. It kind of looks like it. Right? It kind of looks like there's too much hair on that head <laughs> at that point. Well, and there are like there are like no roots, it's all like the same color. Um but the whole their whole plan is is so elaborate uh, cuz they're trying to lure Jacoby cuz they think Jacoby's mm-hmm. up to the bad things. So they let's let's go down the, the list so that we can understand the, the lengths to which the they did this. process. The phone call. Right. Uh, which is kind which, of suspicious because it uses some of the, like, she's using the exact same words from just one tape as the, like, Laura yeah. always talked like that, which they don't know. Yeah. Then the... But he's also, he's also listening to a recording of Laura mm-hmm. when they call him. Yeah, yeah. Which I think we should go back to. But it's also like, dude, you're, you're kind of obsessive. She's been dead for a while now. You don't have any new tapes. <laughs> well... You're, you're, you're listening to old tapes. It's clear that Jacoby is weirdly obsessed. Uh, question is, to what extent? Which they want to find out. So they make a videotape? a videotape and drop it off before the phone call so they can have that extra proof she's holding today's newspaper it's they went to great lengths all to get him to rush out of his office and leave the door unlocked like i would have just been like no disguise no videotape phone call that's probably gonna be enough right yeah right no wait he's seen the jacoby's seen the body anyone can imitate laura's voice I guess, but... If he hadn't seen the body... If you're going to be questioning enough of the 100% the exact same voice calling you on the phone, if you're going to be that suspicious, I would be suspicious of the videotape too. Which I guess in a way he is, because he doesn't decide to go... To the place they've told him. Yeah. But at the same time, it's just like, so you're going to find the... The real laura in the other place or the fake laura what is his what is he thinking is going on at that point where he's like okay this is worth pursuing but not for the meetup yeah anyway um but there is an interesting uh line when he's listening to that tape from laura and she says um why is it so easy to make men like me and i don't even have to try very hard um and i think that like these tapes are probably one of the most like intimate looks into Laura, the character that we have right now mm-hmm. at this moment in this season. Um, we'll obviously, obviously see more of her in Fire Walk with me. But um, I think that line is really interesting because it's a lot about like the male gaze and like um, heterosexual power dynamics and like hard and soft power. And I think that like on the outside, it can seem like a very simplistic comment. Like, it's so hard to be, like, conventionally beautiful and have, mm-hmm. you know, ha- like, heterosexual men be interested in me. Um, but I think that, like, Laura's actually, like, making a pretty complex comment when she says that. Certainly. I, I, I think it's... 
for me, I don't feel like there's too much to read into it in a way because Laura's life is now barring any kind of strange dream world stuff, a closed book. And this is just like a small snippet from this tape that's allowed like in the scene to just kind of hang there mm-hmm. um, and suggest a lot. And it will become, you know, some of what may have led to that statement being put to tape will become clear as we dig a little bit deeper into her life in the second season. But it's just like, it's there to be mulled over. It's like something that actually seems like something that one might say in therapy. Whereas the other tape that we hear this episode is all just like all under the guise of like flirting and exciting Jacoby. This line doesn't seem like it's there just to excite. Yeah, and I oh. think it kind of gets at, like, why she might even be making these um, flirtatious, like, innuendo-esque comments at Jacoby. Mm-hmm. Um, and this confusing sense of, like, for, you know, a vulnerable young girl, like, what is power and how does she access it? And, like, how does she kind of equalize herself with this with these people and these men who have power over her? Yeah. So, that's the mystery trio they do get followed by bobby Mm -hmm. and also some mysterious very breathy voice in the woods um but to back up to our other trio the bobby shelly leo leo gets that that uh intercepts that police transmission and then goes and just murders a bird (laughs) which is one of my favorite plot points i think in season one is that it's like yep they went there the bird was a witness <laughs> and also the bird had to get shot the only quotes that i took down were people talking about the bird <laughs> i'm very happy to hear what those will be uh the blood on the donuts is just a great shot i felt like yes. that had to be called out as like very excellent framing and so forth uh but also just reeling from the shock of having shot leo isn't all that shelly does this episode shelly unfortunately gets played by hank yeah um when hank's like what's the name of the guy who comes in and is really nice to my wife (laughs) you know the wife who doesn't really like me because i'm a bad man who's serving time for manslaughter didn't she say pete or (laughs) i love and i also love that pete's the name he comes up with because then i just picture pete martell and it's like like what if hank thinks that norma's seeing pete because maybe hank knows that pete's marriage isn't satisfying so maybe well, like, it's like he, like i was thinking it could also be a setup for pete genuinely like helping out around the diner <laughs> like just being like norma if... i heard your husband's in prison you need some help around the diner hey uh, i was just wondering you know there's not much for me to do at the mill these days, and uh, I worked in a diner in my 20s, and I was just wondering if you needed any assistance. <laughs> I and love Jack was... Nance. I would love to see more Jack Nance in basically in every scene. But, you know, they had to let him go from the double R when there was a fish discovered in the percolator. Yeah, and stuff. that was actually on the first day. Somehow <laughs> that happened. Uh, also, fish in the pie. It was a bad scene. Mm-hmm. Um you texted me and said you wanted to talk about Lucy and Andy this episode. Did I text you and tell you that? Yeah, you did. Um, actually, it's really funny. Um, 
So they don't exactly reveal a lot about Lucy and Andy's upcoming storyline, but it's definitely like alluded to. We can just we can just it is not a spoiler to say that what is happening on that phone call is the results of a pregnancy test. Yes. It is pretty it is played such that anybody even like kind of watching the show out of the corner of their eye would probably pick up on that. Yeah, my mom texted me about it. The Usenet boards were pretty full of people going like, Lucy's pregnant! Yep. Um, but she's upset with Andy about it. Mm-hmm. I just... I mean, that's a tricky line to walk, and I can't say that I know and have any real-life frame of reference. I only have other media where it's like, pregnancy, not necessarily planned, what to do. Um, <laughs> Sounds like a bad thing. But... How could you ever be mad at Andy about anything? That's why he still has his job on the force. He, like, dropped his gun and that's let it discharge. Okay. That's true. That is true right there. He, like, Ralphs when he sees a dead body. He's, honestly, though, that's, he can't probably, get mad that's probably why their relationship works to the extent that it does, because Lucy can be mad at Andy. Yeah, I guess that's true. Like, they're on a level where they can hold each other accountable and, like, react to each other genuinely rather than like oh you oh, oh andy because oh, that's also kind yeah. of infantilizing mm-hmm. oh absolutely and i think holding him accountable like you know makes it makes it a more serious adult relationship i just yeah let's not get into too much about how he might be accountable <laughs> <laughs> anyway we'll see um, um can i go over my bird stuff really quick oh you have you have notes particular to the mine and bird yeah okay let's go over those quick because i don't have anything else to add other than okay there were just a couple i thought these lines were funny when doc hayward was being like very particular (laughs) about like the fruit that they fed the bird and he was like asking truman (laughs) you don't have you don't have bird notes you have you have grapes notes which is (laughs) you want to call it the line these grapes are on the edge yeah are right on the edge these grapes are right on Maybe that should be the new sign off for the for the podcast. These grapes are right on the edge. See you next week. <laughs> it is a great line. I thought about it. Uh, there's um, also a great moment in this episode. Well, um, and they also it's funny because they play the tape back that they left with the bird when they left the station, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of Lucy talking to the bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a way that, like, I relate to as someone who, like, loves animals and, like, really heavily anthropomorphizes them. And those are, like, kind of slapsticky moments after the this bird, bird has been shot. <laughs> and it's kind of, a, kind of a gruesome scene. Birds eat. No, this bird eats fruit. The sheriff says it's a witness. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, well, but, like, now I'm picturing, like... Like, the bird is being subpoenaed. There's a witness fee. They have to schedule the bird to come in. It has to sit. It has to sit and, like, be questioned. I'm picturing a... a There's a court reporter taking down what the bird says. I'm picturing a... a they have to cross-examine the bird. <laughs> you're getting really into the myth, m- mythicized life of this bird. Um, though I am tickled by the thought of, like, one of those uh, court portrait artists also having to just draw this bird in a cage um i want to i want to backtrack uh to the double r just to say fuck we missed one of the most quintessential it, we were talking about earlier at the top of the show how much of cooper is artifice and whatever and how much mm-hmm. of that is a show he puts on 
But the uh, every day, once a day. I have mm-hmm. a note about this. Yeah. Uh, treat yourself, essentially. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it's actually, like, the very antithesis of treat yourself. Oh, because it's every day. Yeah, it's, it's every day, a little every thing. day, instead of saving up for one day a year. You're right. The point of reference, obviously, being Parks and Rec, the mm-hmm. treat yourself episode with, uh, Donna and Tom. And Ben, who treats himself ben. in the best possible way at the end of that episode. Uh... <laughs> Every day, once a day, give yourself a present. Don't plan it. Don't wait for it. Just let it happen. I like that. I like that. And it speaks... It fits in with everything else we've learned about Cooper so far and explains his gustatory habits to an extent. Uh, That's a word, right? Gustatory? Isn't that... uh, Gastatory? That would be gastric habits. Oh. I think it has to do of concerning the enjoyment of food i feel like maybe i'm wrong anyway Anyway. we're not here to critique my vocabulary we're here to talk about twin peaks it was a tv show that was on in the 90s some people like it anyway (laughs) (laughs) speaking of which let's talk about drape runner corner i don't have any notes drape runner corner i knew you wouldn't have notes on this because it's my segment it's drape runner corner uh a very genuine Drape Runner Corner, which is not to say that they're ever not genuine, but Nadine's really sad in her one scene this episode because she was turned down by the patent officer who did not believe in the silent Drape Runners, and Ed's getting ready to go on this uh, sting op to One-Eyed Jacks, but Ed's like taking the time to be like, no. Don't you ever give up. Don't you don't you listen to the <laughs> shitty patent officer. There are more people you can pitch this to. You'll get there. We'll get that motorboat you were looking at. <laughs> like it's like he cares. Whereas in every other scene with Nadine so far, he's kind of had this like comical grimace on his face, like, oh, I can't. I can't deal with this, or I'm seeing another woman, sort of, (laughs) and I have to have my, like, curb your enthusiasm, uh, Larry face, just like, which, uh, I made you laugh so hard, you dropped your phone, uh, but here, he just, like, looks genuinely, uh, like he's empathizing, and he's upset that Nadine is upset, and I thought that that should be called out. Yeah. Considering that they are my OTP. All right. Well, and... The show eventually does fill in kind of the backstory for their marriage and makes it less like, look, he married an unfortunate nag of a wife and more like, this is why they're married and this is why their relationship is the way it is. That was Drape Runner Corner. It was a good segment. You like it a lot or you don't. I don't care. All right. Um, so one thing we've glossed over and that I don't have a lot of notes on is, uh, the Bookhouse Boys' field trip to One-Eyed Jacks. Here's the notes I have. I love that they're oral surgeons because it's actually plausible (laughs) as being these kind of lame types who still have a lot of money to blow on gambling and hookers. That's true. Uh, fits pretty well. Cooper does look great in his getup. I also love his comment... About, like, it fits with everything else about Dale, where it's like, 
I always try to make 10 to 15% on top of the Bureau's money when I gamble on it. So he's like a real good gambler too. It's like, that makes sense. That makes sense as a character trait. Uh, and that he would always bring back winnings, like the FBI golden boy. And Ed nearly blows it. Well, wait, wait. Do you think he's bringing that back to the FBI or do you think he's pocketing that? No, 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 no. He's like, he makes money on the Bureau's return, I think. Okay. I think that's the implication. Okay. I thought you were saying that he, like, takes the money back to the Bureau, and I was like, that is one step too far. Wait, takes the money he makes back to the Bureau? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's what I think what is being implied, is that, like, oh, okay, you need to do this operation where you have to go undercover and gamble, and then not only does he, like, get the information, but he's also like, here, I've returned the money with, with money on top. That's absolutely to, how I read that. I have to go back and rewatch that because I would picture that as like I'm gonna pack it. Pack I just want to say save up for my for my property. I no, I think he's too good. I think he's too good to to profit off. But of what that. he wants and what he needs are two different things, and Fair. he needs this property. <laughs> he needs, and he he needs wants... a down payment on a log cabin. <laughs> really, he doesn't have much savings, unfortunately. Uh, no, Ed almost screws it up. Not to mention, start, he looks ridiculous. But Ed's saying he was... Okay, if I was, like, trying to, like, scope people out, see how legit they are, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't let Ed through. Like, that was a huge fuck up. I'm a mechanic, no, I'm an oral surgeon, right there. But then he, like, recovers in this, like, sly way where he, like, continues the car (laughs) and teeth thing cover he just barely riffing with okay. with black rose and it's just like okay she's tickled and is into it for that reason and like you can maybe play it off as like oh she's fine with these people kind of lying about where they're from because of course they will they give fake names clearly right. but at the same time no he like so clearly panics he's like so clearly hiding something exactly anyway ed tisk tisk that's those are the, the notes I have on it. Then they see Jacques Renault and it's like, oh look, it's the guy. It's Jacques. That's uh, that's where we end that. But Coop in a tux was my third favorite look of the. Okay, of the episode. what was your second? Do you want to take a guess? I told you earlier today, so. Uh, Audrey in the in the sweater and thing, and then if Cooper's third. You were into Josie's look. Yeah. Her uh, blue and green plaid coat, mm-hmm. robe, sweater, something. something. It looks great. Great color blocking. <laughs> great color blocking. That's very important. Um, genuinely, it is in outfits. Uh, speaking of Josie, the previously established Josie, Ben, Catherine, double cross triangle uh, gets a little bit more complicated this week in a really great scene that I love with Catherine and this overeager insurance salesman <laughs> who just needed one last signature on a million dollar life insurance policy for Catherine that she had no idea about. Which, if your plan to kill someone and make a bunch of money off of their demise at all involves the cooperation of a legit insurance insurance salesperson 
like no call that off do a different plan find someone scummier because this guy he's too good from from the first time you see him he's just like this is an upstanding young man well the thing about bureaucracy is like people talk about how it like slows down the process and like whatever and it's hard that shit is documented from day one there are copies on copies on copies of whatever had already been signed of that agreement and they've all been sent to different people there's a huge paper trail leading back to this sly little plan but also regardless of whether or not there will the plan happens and there's an investigation after the fact that leads to incriminating evidence and suspicions of foul play just this dude this dude he's just like i'm i just thought it was kind of weird that you didn't want to meet about this policy at all so i just wanted to make sure like you would be able to tell that from dealing with this dude day one yeah he's met with josie he's met with ben both of them have dark past they should be able to like have their bullshit detector tuned such that they're just like this guy's too clean no but now Catherine knows, and I love it. I love that scene a lot for that reason. It's just, like, such a, ben- like, banal way. And then way. she rolls with it. Yeah. Um, just someone doing their job right has foiled this plan. <laughs> anyway. That's all that I had to talk about this episode. Well, and the last scene is Josie? Like, one of the last scenes is Josie on the phone, and then Hank is with her. Yeah, being being scummy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically the cliffhanger ending. Kind of like, what, what is Hank doing there? Bad things, always. What Terrible is Hank things. doing in any scene? Being bad. Looking yeah. kind of like Brian Cranston. Kind of. Kind of, sort of. Yeah, I can see that. Um, did you have anything you wanted to add about the director of this week's episode? Caleb Deschanel? Do I... Um, it's actually interesting because what he was quoted as saying, um, I guess specifically, maybe not specifically about this episode, um, was that there was sort of a leisurely pace, like the script was about 40 pages, and then Mm -hmm. generally when you're screenwriting one page is one minute of screen time. Um, so that giving the director, you know, a two to five minute cushion to just like kind of linger on shots or what have you. But we had talked about, I think with regards to episode three, um, that um, the writer of episode three, hold on, I have to pull it up right now. Um, I can vamp during. I can, I can talk about what else Caleb Deschanel has worked on. Um, actually, just wait, hold on. It was actually okay. episode four. So this was the one that was written by Robert Engels, who's the guy who did um, Halloween Town, I believe. Okay. <laughs> um, so he, in his um, director's commentary, was the one that was quoted as saying um, that there was all of these extra, um, all like 20 minutes of extra footage that they were shooting at the time. Uh-huh. So my question is sort of like, did over the course of season one, did they kind of like whittle it down and like kind of cut excess or like who's right Hmm. so scripts being shorter and allowing more time for creative directing and editing versus too much and cutting back could be different episode to episode depending on the goals of the particular plot beats but my understanding was that like both of these writer directors um 
we're speaking generally about the production process, not about these specific episodes. Um, because both Caleb Deschanel and Robert Engels did work on multiple episodes of yeah. Twin Peaks. This is Deschanel's first, but then he comes back and directs two more in the next season. But he's not known so much for being a director as he is for being a cinematographer, having worked on things like Jack Reacher, that recent, uh, oh shit, what's his name? Uh, no. the pretty one, the one, the Scientologist, um, wait, Tom what? Cruise. Uh, <laughs> wait, you couldn't remember The Tom pretty Cruise. one, the, the Scientologist, Tom Cruise, yeah. Uh, Jack Reacher, uh, worked on National Treasure, <laughs> starring your boy Nick Cage, The Patriot, and The Passion of the Christ. So, like, pretty big deal movies, um, but also directed TV and I think still directs TV from time yeah, to time. Yeah, he was, like, originally a cinematographer. And just dabbles on the side in directing episodes of acclaimed television yeah. shows. But, um, so this was written by Harley Payton, who had previously, um, written for episode three. Hmm. And, um, Harley Payton actually won an Emmy for, uh, there? I, I don't know what... I don't know their gender. Um, Just go with there. He he uh, okay. won an Emmy for um, his writing for episode three. Very good. Episode three is a good episode, after all. So, oh, God, that sounded terrible. Sorry okay. about that can sound. Well, but that was also the episode that, that was the first episode where, like, people were like, this isn't the same. It's not right. Oh, whatever. Whatever. Anyway. Won an Emmy. Come on. Okay. <sighs> So, tell me other production facts, or tell me what the internet freaks had to say I this have, week. okay, I have a kind of longer production thing. All right, shoot. Okay, so, um, I was talking to my dad, and my dad listens to this podcast, and he saw Twin Peaks when it came out, and he was like, why would, why would ABC put this against Friends? Like, or, not Friends, Cheers, <laughs> basically the same thing. Uh, why? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. You don't want to keep this story going too long. I understand. But I'm just going to say, we can talk about this after the show. Friends and Cheers are not the same thing. I mean, like, critically acclaimed comedy of their time. Sitcom, multicam. Anyway. (sighs) Okay. So, point being, like, why, why would ABC choose to do this? Like, David Lynch wasn't coming in with a, like, I've got these six blockbusters under my belt. It was like a... You know, Mm -hmm. I have some cult movies that some people watched kind of thing. Um, So I looked into it and I saw what else ABC had on their lineup that season. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through and if you've heard of something, stop me. Okay. Otherwise, I'm going to keep going. Elvis. Mr. Belvedere. Yep. Life Goes On. America's Funniest Home Videos. Yep. China Beach. MacGyver. Yep. Capital News. The uh, Who's the Boss? Yep. The Wonder Years. Yep. Roseanne. Yep. And I should mention, those are all in a single block. The Wonder Years, Who's the Boss, Roseanne. Yeah, their comedy block was pretty much on fire. So yeah, good for them. Yeah, that was Tuesdays. Chicken Soup. Coach. Yep. 30-something. Growing Pains. Yep. Doogie Howser. Mm-hmm. Head of the Class. Equal Justice. Father Dowling Mysteries, The Young Riders, Perfect Strangers, Yep, Just the Ten of Us, Living Dolls, 
That's a terrifying name. <laughs> Mission Impossible. Yep. Okay. Do you expect me to know more or less of those by name? Actually, less. I was, like, pretty impressed. That's what I thought. Yeah. That's not a... Compare that to, like, struggling NBC NBC years. was, like, on fire this <laughs> Oh, I'm not saying at this, this point. Around, I'm like, saying, like, when NBC was struggling, like, a lot of those shows are far more forgettable yeah, than but MacGyver. Come on. No, no, no. The the stuff they have that's good, like, mm. was definitely lasting, but the stuff that you didn't recognize was all, like, canceled, on its penultimate season, like, not... So, so in essence, what you want to say is Twin Peaks was the best performer among all those, so it was the only they had, thing they, they could pitch. They had reason to believe that it was going to be better performing because Twin Peaks premiered in the spring, so it was a mid-season mm-hmm. pickup. A bunch of that stuff got canceled in the fall. Okay. That would explain putting it against Cheers. And I can see why they wouldn't put, like, Roseanne, who's the boss on the Wonder Years against Cheers, because Roseanne was actually the most watched show of that entire season. Yeah, you so don't why... want to cannibalize those views by yeah. just throwing it up for the sake of competition. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right. Is that is that it? Is that it for your, your early 90 television quizzing? Do you have some who's the boss questions you have prepared for me? Um, I don't, but actually, wait, so that show 30-something? Uh-huh. It won a bunch of Emmys. It won a shit ton of Emmys. And got canceled? And it made a bunch of best of lists in the early 2000s, and I had never heard of it. Oh, okay. Had you heard of it? No, I don't think so. Sounds like, it makes me think of 13 going on 30. (laughs) Makes me think of that movie. It's like kind of a cool concept. Like, the concept was that there were these baby boomers who were now... In in their 30s. I don't want to watch... Raising families. I don't want to watch a show about baby boomers. Ugh. Ew. That's why you watch Friends. Because Friends is a show about 20-somethings. There we go. There There we go. go. That's why you don't watch Cheers. Cheers is about the baby boomers. Anyway, let's move on to the internet? Yeah. To the Usenet? Um, Just for reference, this week uh, Twin Peaks was actually uh, tied with family matters in viewership ah so urkel urkel but they were it was also like pretty like middle of the pack i don't know the exact number but they were like 40 something most viewed like (laughs) i I, I don't think about the show like okay contemporary with all these things you just listed out and maybe do the activity on fine but then yeah if you really stop and think like dale cooper similar cultural capital but not close to urkel <laughs> contemporary <laughs> status like oh that's weird that's weird i remember being five years old in uh spokane washington being in this uh like second not second hand store it was called the white elephant exchange and so what it meant was that they were a store that collected all sorts of junk that other stores couldn't move right and this meant like the inventory of toy stores that would close down and i remember they had a section which if i had if i had known then with my five-year-old brain to invest if only i had known i would have bought up all of the bart simpsons and <laughs> All the Urkel dolls that nobody wanted in the <laughs> mid-90s. Because there were tons of them. Anyway. There's actually a really great episode of the Lucas Brothers Moving Company about Urkel. <laughs> okay. I'm just, I'm going to plug that show because it's great. 
and no one watches it. But I'm sure they will get more viewership from our podcast listening base. Yeah. You know, maybe. Maybe your parents will tune in to watch that show now. <laughs> and they'll have precisely two more viewers. All right. Let's, let's okay. talk about the internet. Okay. Let's... Okay. Um, so there's not a lot of different stuff going on. This is the week that... Um, David Lynch wins the the big prize at Cannes for Wild at Heart. This is the week that the show gets renewed. So there's a lot of discussion about that. Um, there's also these rumors that the show is going to be re-aired as a mini-series over the summer. This episode okay. premieres in mid-May. I don't know what the difference would be between doing reruns and showing it as a mini-series. Like maybe the thought was that they would re-edit the episodes into like... Who little knows? movie chunks or something who yeah. knows who cares because it um, didn't happen so here are some theories from this week um there is a theory that mike and bobby are part of a cult that controls the darkness in the woods that, all right that they're the the nominal mike and bob still right um there is still more discussion about the locket and its whereabouts and who <laughs> took it okay so one day we'll move past that. And then um, someone pointed out that this episode was full of Kennedy illusions, um, starting with, or the series as a whole, not even this episode. So starting with Cooper's, you know, what really happened between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys, right. uh, Audrey's resemblance to Marilyn Monroe, and, you know, Sherilyn Fenn mm -hmm. eventually played Marilyn Monroe in a Lifetime movie. Yeah. She looked great. I'm, I'm, I am aware of that, that factoid. And then from there things kind of start to dissolve. So this person puts Leo, as in Lee-o, as in <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald, but also Johnson, as in Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson. B. Johnson. Yeah. Um, and then Jacques Jack, Bobby bobby uh-huh um yeah. as the bad guys which i also like what do you at this point what are you doing what, okay. are, what are you saying um good try and then someone actually pointed out that um between these past two episodes which span the course of two days the moon goes from full to half which usually takes about two weeks to do uh-huh you can definitely chalk that up to a technical production glitch but i prefer to believe that the Twin Peaks has its own weird moon schedule. Sure. That doesn't otherwise affect the reading of the show. It just makes it seem weirder. Okay. I'm into it. Is that is that it for the internet people? JFK theories and, and moon watchers? <laughs> yeah. Um, that's good to know that people were making sure that <laughs> TV shows were up to date on the, the night sky back in the 90s. I wonder if anyone does that now i'm i'm sure what lesson has probably been learned from or or what lesson has been learned by production teams is to just not show the moon in enough yeah, episodes for you to really put to, stitch together the uh the timeline time. yeah anything else to add um no that's pretty much it going on on the usenet boards well Next week, we will talk about the season one finale, right? Yeah, we will. Look at us. We're already at the end of season one. And then we have 
22 more episodes to go. Almost three times as much Twin Peaks Most as you've covered Most of which so I haven't seen. Yeah, that's gonna be super interesting. I cannot wait to see. (laughs) I cannot wait to see some of your reactions, but I've said that almost every week. I'm yes, you have. (laughs) I am Matthew Olson. You can find me on Twitter at Matthew Olson. Spell it right. Uh, That's that's my tag. (laughs) Um, I'm on Twitter at at Ashley Brandt. A S H L E Y B R A N D T. Um. And you can find us on iTunes, on Twitter, on Tumblr, on Simplecast. Yep, all those places. Just search Twin Peaks Peaks and look for the right link. But do subscribe on iTunes. That helps. That's good. We like that. Otherwise, send us off. How are you going to choose to do it? Are you gonna are you gonna do, are you gonna bust out the other line? Or are you gonna just do it like we've hold always on, done it? Hold on, hold on. You just remembered. You just remembered you had another option available to you, didn't you? I won't pick for you. This is all up to you. Stop. Um. Just say the regular one. You you won't laugh as much. <laughs> These grapes are right on the edge. <laughs>